From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. to the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Jessica Lee. I'm Senior Director of the Council of Korean Americans, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Abraham Kim. And today we're thrilled to share our sixth episode of our podcast series with Angela Ahn, a violinist of the world-class Ahn Trio and a professor of music at the Montana State University. Abe had a chance to interview Angela over video recently, and they had a fascinating conversation about Angela's history of discovering music at a very young age, coming to the United States at age nine to attend Juilliard with her two sisters, and then eventually going on to releasing a number of albums and performing globally. So Abe, tell us about this particular interview and uh, your conversation with Angela. Well, thank you, Jessica. It was a very fascinating interview with Angela. Um, I knew Angela from my days in Montana. Uh, she was one of the few Korean Americans that were living in the entire state along with me and a few others. But it was a real um, interesting to dig into her life. And I didn't realize the number of accomplishments as well as just the important people that she's been meeting around the world as a performer with her sisters. In this interview, we dig into her childhood. She came to the United States with her sister at a very young age of nine and, and then uh, went on to get trained in Juilliard, as you mentioned. And then also she became a, an important uh, musician as well as profiled in magazines like Time Magazine uh, in 1987 and, and, uh, and performed at the White House uh, at the state dinner when President Obama had uh, welcomed a South Korean president, then South Korean President Lee Myung-bak. But also, finally, uh, we talked a little bit about she is an educator. Uh, she is, as you mentioned, she's a professor of music uh, at Montana State University and talked about the importance of art education, the arts, and how it's not only important for our communities, but, but also important for shaping our lives. And as a music uh, professor, how she is uh, really um, uh, nurturing as well as uh, sculpting the lives of these uh, young people as they uh, consider f- other future careers, not just music. So it's 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 a, uh, a wonderful interview, and I look forward to sharing with you. Great. Well, without further ado, let's turn over to the interview now. Hi, my name is Abraham Kim. I'm the Executive Director of the Council of Korean Americans, and I'm your host of CK's podcast, The Korean American Perspectives. Today, I'm pleased to interview renowned world-class violinist and professor of music at Montana State University, Angela Ahn. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much, Abe. Uh, as a part of uh, the Juilliard-trained multiple award-winning Ahn Trio uh, with her twin sisters, uh, Lucia on the piano and Maria on the cello. The three of you uh, have earned a tremendous reputation in pushing the genre of boundaries of music, playing across all 50 states and in over 30 countries. 
And Angela, we are so honored to have you here today uh, to not only talk about your life, but also the importance of music, uh, music yes. education. And so we're, and I, uh, we are looking forward to a great interview. Um, I'm so excited to be speaking with you. <laughs> So let's just get started uh, with the at the beginning of your life. Uh, mm -hmm. You and your siblings were born in South Korea, and you came here at the age of nine, uh, and you moved to New Jersey, uh, where you and your twin sister uh, soon after uh, entered into the Juilliard School to further your musical training. Uh, tell me a little bit about that transition. Uh, you were old enough to actually uh, have a certain level of self-awareness that you were in Korea and then came yes. to the United States. Uh, tell me about that. So we grew up in Seoul and uh, my sisters are almost two years older than me. So the three of us came and our mom pretty much brought us by herself. Um, what was really interesting about the transition, you know, people always ask us, was it very difficult? Was it very scary? And I think for the three of us, it was only exciting and thrilling. You know, you're going to this new place, this big, and the first stop we made was in Disneyland and that was like, <laughs> wow, this is the coolest place on the planet, you know. And um, then we came to New York and New Jersey. Actually, we settled in New Jersey. I'm sure our mother had many, many, many difficulties that she didn't necessarily share with us. For us, it was very exciting. When, when I think about that period in my life, I think auditioning for Juilliard pre-college and going there every week was it really had a huge impact in our almost like happiness and um, settling into this new country because as exciting as the transition and moving to this new place was, we went to a regular uh, middle school in New Jersey. There were no other Asian children. I think maybe there was one family, you know, other than us. Um, and it was very sports oriented. And so we really didn't feel like we fit in in any way. But going to Juilliard on Saturdays and being surrounded by not only international children and, you know, kids from all over the world, but also kids that shared our passion was huge. And I think that really had so much to do with the happiness of the transition period. Were your parents musicians? Is that how they? Is that how you got your first start in music? It's so odd. Both our parents are not musicians. Um, Dad was in publishing growing up, and Mom is. She's. I think we get all a lot of the creative juices from her. She's a writer. Um, I remember, you know, she, her telling us stories about being one of the first women to interview the Blue House in Korea, you know, be the staff reporter in the Blue House. And, and she was always writing um, essays and short stories. And, um, and so she had that artistic side, but neither of them played music. Hmm. It must have been an interesting dynamic that, you know, all three of you, uh, all three siblings were musicians. And I'm sure... Uh, um, what was the, tell us a little bit about the dynamics of, of, of your sisters and you growing up. Well, you know, it seemed, it, it's another interesting thing about our, our childhood. You know, we, we didn't think of music as this kind of competitive um, thing that you, even really as a profession when we were little, 
So it was sort of this natural thing that we shared, and it was really fun. And in fact, Maria and I, the cellist and I, started playing our instruments because our pianist, Sister Lucia, wanted to play the piano and begged our parents back in Korea. And so she started, and and it wasn't like she started the piano and our parents said, you're going to be a pianist when you grow up. You know, she started the piano because she just fell in love with it in her kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And then when Lucia started, Marie and I, we still were so close in ages, right? And we just felt like, well, why aren't we doing something like that? You know, if she gets to play the piano, why don't we get to play the piano? So I think it was about a year after Lucia started when Marie and I also started on the piano. But we quickly wanted something different, you know, because the three of us, three girls, very close in ages, you can imagine, we don't all want to do the same thing. And so we ended up choosing the violin and the cello. And at that point, we had no idea that we would grow up, move to America, go to Juilliard, become a piano player. I mean, we really didn't. So when you came to the United States, um, uh, you quickly... Uh, were identified as uh, some of the leading um, musicians in the world. And in fact, in 1987, we were on the cover of Time Magazine as uh, Asian American whiz kids. Did you feel tremendous pressure because of that, some of the publicity that you were getting during this time? I think in a way we were lucky because I think if you grow up, as many musicians do with musical parents, somehow you feel more pressure because they know the business, they know the world, they know what it takes. And, and in a way, I think it was a blessing that our parents were not musicians because they didn't know that this was so competitive and so hard in a way. I think being a musician and making a life as a musician is not an easy life. Um, So when we were on that cover story on Time Magazine, I remember actually very clearly Maria was at camp in, I think, in Canada. And Lucia and I were at Aspen Music Festival in Colorado. And they, somebody contacted our teachers and said, we would love to include the girls and we would like to send a photographer from Time Magazine. And so for us, again, it was kind of like, okay, we're at camp and we're, we're playing concerts and we're playing with other kids and it's fun and wow, the Time Magazine photographer is going to come take a picture of us and write it. You know, like it didn't, we didn't even really realize what that meant. We just thought it was fun. Um, looking back on it, <laughs> I think, I think, wow, that's amazing. You know, but we, I don't think we really even knew what that meant. Did you, uh, did you, so, but getting, as you grew older, did you feel, I guess you had alluded to it, living in an Asian family, mm-hmm. um, feeling the sense of pressure to constantly achieve and succeed and, and being, I guess, uh, a face for the community. Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel this kind of sense of pressure as you were um, moving forward in your career as a young person? Um, I, to be honest, I don't, well, maybe later, you know, maybe, um, not so much as teenagers and not so much even, you know, starting Juilliard for college, because of course with Juilliard, even pre-college and college and grad school, every single time you pass through a gate, you have to re-audition. 
and you're not immediately, you know, promised a spot just because you were at school before. But none of them really seemed scary or we didn't feel so much pressure. I think the first time we really did feel pressure was I was still in school and my sisters had both gotten their master's degrees and we got um, scouted by EMI. Uh, and actually at first it was Sony and then EMI and then a booking manager that wanted to send us all over the world. And I think that was when we really started feeling the pressure. Mm. But, you know, like it's a lot for a 20 something year old to be all of a sudden going all over the world traveling and they're anywhere between 100 and 3000 people who bought tickets to go see you play. And, you know what, I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible what it takes, I think. And if your flight is delayed and you're tired, or if you have a flu and you have a fever, no one knows that you still have to go out and perform. So I think that's when it's, it was when we really started full-time touring when we really felt that pressure. Hmm. So uh, let's move forward in your career. Uh, and, um, uh, can you elaborate on your music style and selection? Um, you've, the on trio has often been described as genre revolutionaries, uh, and your music is not purely classical, uh, but it's really, it's been described as a masterful combination of diverse genres, including rock music. Uh, so, uh, could you describe, uh, what, what style of music, uh, that you play? Um, I would say that it's, um, it, what we play is classically, based music, so obviously we all have classical training. And then it's really, I, I kind of still think it's classical music, but what is happening in the classical music world, just like, you know, when Brahms wrote a trio, he took things from Bach and earlier composers. So then composers now are taking ideas from everything that surrounds them. It's just the world has become bigger and uh, cultures have blended more. So for me, um, our style is really just something that uh, is very relevant to the world now. And I think the selections that we make come from, of course, our kind of passions and sort of the things that we're interested in, but it's also, also the composers that we run into and the artists that we run into. So as you're traveling, you meet, you know, for example, a rock band in the Czech Republic, and you, well, at least us, we um, end up collaborating with them. We live in New York, and we end up collaborating with a dance company that's based in New York. We went to Korea and fell in love with the, the B-boy groups. Um, do you know about B-boying, right? Yeah. And so we ended up uh, collaborating with a very well-known B-boy group, like an event in a very traditional art center, which is really cool, you know, but just, or you run into singers and then you think, oh, it would be so cool to work with them. So then you end up collaborating with them. Um, so I, I feel like our style is something that has just uh, evolved naturally and it just draws from everything, from rock music to jazz, to pop, to classical, of course and to um, uh, kind of computer music. I mean, everything. That's amazing. So it sounds like you, you draw your inspiration from the people that you meet, uh, just your global travel. 
as well as you just uh, opening your mind and exposing yourself to all kinds of different genres. And from there, it drives your uh, music choice and your collaborators and so forth. I think, I think that's right. And I think also the inspiration, sort of the most basic inspiration comes from growing up into different cultures. Mm. I think that's huge. You know, when you grow up just in Korea and you live there in, or you grow up just in the United States, then you're really um, very much kind of in that one culture. But when you spend a, a significant number of years in one culture and then you move to a different culture, then you're drawing already from these two very different cultures. And then, like you said, just traveling around the world and meeting different kinds of musicians and artists definitely also affects our, our music. Yeah, speaking of uh, different cultures, I read about that you performed with Brian Adams at the White House uh, <laughs> during the Obama administration in front of the president of Korea, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken. How was well, that? Well, that's a little bit, okay, so there are two separate things. So the Brian Adams uh, class oh. uh, was while we were at school. Okay. Um, it was in the time of MTV Music. And um, they called on some Juilliard students to come and perform with Brian Adams. But, but it was very significant because what, for two reasons. One, I think it was the first time we really understood this idea of what a rock star is. And, you know, just working with them and playing with them. And also, it kind of inspired us to create our on-plug album. Unplugged, you know, we kind of got from the MTV Unplugged. Um, so that, those, that was really fun. The White House was very separate from uh, Brian Adams. It was in the Obama administration, and he, uh, President Obama had invited um, then Korean President uh, Lee. This was in 2011, and um, so it was a state dinner. And that was a completely different experience. And it was so memorable because, you know, when you're at a state dinner, it's such an intimate group of just, I don't know, like a couple hundred. And, and you eat dinner with, uh, <laughs> like, everyone from, you know, American and, uh, and Korean um, dignitaries. And, in fact, uh, playing a concert on this made-up stage on I think it was in the red room or the blue room and everyone is sitting just feet away from you so you know there's then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and uh, the President uh, Obama and Vice President Biden and and Korean President First Lady Lee and and Hillary Clinton was at my little eight-person dinner table with me you know it's just it's it's incredible too. It's such an incredible honor. And what we found so fascinating about that experience was when you walk into the White House and they have already vetted you and made sure that you're, you know, safe to be there, then it's like playing any other concert or being with any other people. It's so casual and warm and inviting. And so it was just incredible. What, what did you play that evening? <laughs> We played, um, of course, we thought very, very hard about uh, what we wanted to play, and we ended up playing now um, one of our absolute favorite pieces that we just recorded, actually, on our Blue album uh, called Sky Life, written by David Balakrishnan, 
and we ended up performing two of our favorite Estotia pieces because I think this great Argentinian tango music is loved by all, but especially Korean. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a, I'm sure it was just an amazing evening of not only important dignitaries, but just a, a fun evening with the music and, uh, and yeah. bringing the two cultures together in a, in a wonderful place like the White House. Yes, it was so fun. And it was so, I mean, the thing that made the most, I think, biggest impression on me was just how warm it was. You know, it was just, it was lovely and so many hugs. And it was just like, oh, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you are an educator as well. You're a professor yeah. at, the, at Montana State University. And, uh, and you're also teaching. Obviously, you're teaching as a professor there. I wanted to talk to you about your perspective on the arts and arts uh, impact on education and the community. Uh, it, our arts is often seen as a, an important bridge between cultures as well as different countries. I understand you're also a member of the Montana Arts Council as well, uh, which also its main mission is to bring the arts into into communities uh, across the state of Montana. So just from a more kind of general sense, why, why do you think the art is critical in one's education and, and the health of a community? I think arts is critical because of what it takes, the idea of creativity. And here's what I think about a lot. You know, no matter what you do, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, or um, you know, a writer or a chef or a politician, I, I really think what you need more than anything else is creativity. And so for me, bringing art um, to every, every person's life and all communities and even businesses from, is very, very important. And I, I think about this quite a bit too. So my students, are maybe about half of them are music majors, but the other half are not. They're English majors or um, or uh, engineer engineering majors or business or nursing or or you know whatever that's not music. And every single thing that we talk about at the lesson and all the things that I teach them, things like patience, attention to detail listening. I mean, listening is more important than anything. So listening to the violin, listening to each other if they're playing in a group, you know, um, and, and being very, very thoughtful. You know, you think about all those qualities, that, and those are what everyone needs to succeed, even if you're not in music. Oh, so through music, you're teaching them life skills. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, speaking of listening and patience, it's something that we definitely need more of in the in the political realm. Living yes. here in Washington D.C., so do, <laughs> so do you think the arts have a role to play in politics and international relations? Well, think about um, what I, I mean. Yes, the easy answer is absolutely. And think about what we have just been talking about: is that listening skill and being thoughtful and patient, you know, and those are things that I, I, I think if politicians, um, and I know it's easier said than done, I'm sure, but I think those are really, really important things to think about. You know, imagine if every politician was forced to play in a string quartet 
or a piano trio with each other, you know, in different parties, they would have to listen and speak and, and be respectful and all those things. So I think that's the answer. Everyone should play in a chamber group. <laughs> it's a solution for world peace. Everyone should be playing in a chamber group. <laughs> Whether it's a string quartet or, or even a string orchestra, you know, where you have to listen to each other. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> well, um, uh, in, in an inter another interview that I read uh, that you gave, you discussed the balance between music and life, uh, stating, uh, quote, we love music, but we want to live and want to experience life. And we don't want to give up other aspects just to be musicians. As much as we love music, life and the experiences of life come first. So uh, tell me a little bit about that quote. What did you mean by that? And how do, you, how do you balance? How do you balance between your musical life and other aspects of your life? Well, I think there are, to me, it seems that there are two different kinds of musicians. There's one kind that lives and breathes music. They play music, they read about music, they listen to music, they study music, everything revolves around music. And then I think there's another kind, and I'm sure it's about half and half is my guess. I mean, I have no, nothing to support that. But, and then there's the kind of musician that I think is more like me or even my sisters, um, where we're very, very stubborn about not giving up an aspect of life and experiencing things like traveling, like reading books that's not about music, like um, spending an entire day making the perfect pie, you know, or, um, or uh, I mean, for me anyway, I try to ski as much as possible in the winter. And in the summer, I try to hike and play tennis as much as possible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, the, and, and also, I guess cooking is all year around because I of course like every other Korean I'm crazy about anything that has to do with food um but so it's a balance and how do you balance I think just by being very um determined about not giving up on the experiences that you want and really managing your time as well as you could Great, great words of wisdom about life. <laughs> so you said your hobbies are skiing and uh, hiking. Obviously, there's a lot of opportunities to do that in where you are in Bozeman, Montana. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So speaking of Montana, uh, you know, given your global career, you had the option to live anywhere in the world. Uh, why Bozeman, Montana, uh, especially when your sisters are all living in New York City? I know my sisters were, I think, mad at me for maybe three years. <laughs> and now they're finally not mad at me, but now they come as much as they, you know, as more than I think they should. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but um, Montana was moving to Montana had nothing to do with my work, actually. It had everything to do with my personal life. I um, very briefly, without giving too much of a personal, um, I fell in love with someone in Montana and um, moved here and that relationship didn't work out. But what I got out of it was an incredible love for this state and especially the town that I live in, Bozeman. Um, and, 
everything changed. Actually, my life changed when I got to Montana. Um, leaving New York and having lived in New York City for 20 years, I was, I think the only thing I worried about when I first decided to move to Bozeman was, will I become kind of, I don't know, softer, like yeah, less inspired I, because New York is so busy and New York is just so energetic. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting was the opposite happened. I became more focused. I had the space to literally the space, <laughs> but also um, philosophically and intellectually the space to grow and create and um, it, it, I think it is the best choice I've made as an adult was moving to Montana. Well, having lived in Montana for six years, uh, coming from DC, I completely understand what you're talking <laughs> about. Uh, less distraction. And there's something inspirational about being in the middle of uh, natural beauty, right? And also, uh, like you said, space and uh, people are very kind and, and, and the sense of community within the state as well. I think all are important factors that help to, uh, you know, give a, a sense of freedom, I would say. Yeah, you know, I think we talked about this briefly before, but I every time my mother comes to Bozeman, she, she always mentions the fact that this reminds her of a, a small village in Korea hmm. where everyone... Um, really look, looks after each other. They all come together. If you make a really great meal, you, the first thing you want to do is share it with other people. You know, I, I have this, fortunately, a very large group of friends in Bozeman, and they all, when I get busy, they go and look after my mother. You know, this is, it's incredible. They, they call her and say, hey, do you want to go for a drive or do you want to meet for coffee? And I, I I don't see that happening in New York City because of the tempo and the, you know, just the lifestyle. Um, when I was uh, when I was invited by the Arts Council to to be in the Arts Council, Governor Steve Bullock called me on the phone and left me a message. And you know, I just can't imagine that happening in New York. You know, it's just it's incredible to be in this place that is just so community oriented and just so open. Uh, as one of a handful of Asian Americans in Montana, uh, um, uh, what challenges and opportunities have you faced? <laughs> well, I, the opportunity I think is amazing because I feel like I can be, you know, I can be the Korean ambassador and teach people about my culture and especially about food. Um, and it, it's really it's an incredible opportunity to be able to make a difference. And, you know, it's, and beyond being Korean, I think I actually think about the fact that I can teach my kids at school. Um, I can really make a difference, you know, taking my Juilliard training and bringing it to this small community. And, and I actually have, I think, four of my kids now that have all gone on to teaching in public schools all over Montana and Missoula and Great Falls and Billings. And that's incredible. So I'm taking my, the, the things that I 
learn from my teacher. And then also even culturally, the things that we were talking about earlier, the thing, the life lessons, you know, and, and they're going out and teaching that to other little kids. And so that's really cool. Um, the challenge is for me, the biggest challenge is not being able to go to Koreatown and just have a great bowl of kimchi jjigae when the, you know, when I want it. <laughs> Uh, so where do you get your kimchi? Do you, uh, I guess you go to Iho Pomeroy's <laughs> restaurant, right? <laughs> yes. So yes, we are one of our council members is Korean and she's wonderful. So yes, I, there's Iho's restaurant. Um, we actually have two Korean restaurants in Bozeman, but you know, when, when I moved here, I remember, and I decided to actually stay permanently, my mom said, you have to have a kimchi refrigerator. And so now, <laughs> Every time she comes, she makes me enough kimchi until she comes the next time. So like six months worth of kimchi. Wow, that's a lot of kimchi. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things she asked me to buy the first time she visited me was one of those big stainless um, bowls, you know, that you can make like 10 heads of cabbage kimchi. Do you find Montanans naturally interested in Korea? Do you get a lot of questions about Korea? I do. Um, And also I'm able to share all so many things about Korea with my students, with my friends. I do. Yeah. I think Montanans, because it's such a, I mean, it's such a large state geographically, but it's such a small state number wise. Um, We just made a million people like a couple of years ago. And so I think they are very, very interested because there isn't such a big uh, diversity here, which I, I miss that too, actually, about, you know, the sort of not hearing so many different languages walking down the street. Um, but yes, I think they're very curious because in a way they're so insulated. Hmm. So you mentioned that um, you occasionally go to Korea. Do you, do you get an opportunity to go to Korea maybe once or once every couple of years or a year or so? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I would say we uh, have an opportunity to perform in Korea probably every every other year or something like that. Um, my sisters and I were there last summer. There, there's a big international music festival in Daejeon. So we were there last year and were able to spend almost a week. And it was lovely, you know, um, made this whole video for Korean TV, of course. <laughs> And played uh, with the symphony and just got to eat so much incredible Korean food. Um, and I think the time before that, well, I mean, we end up going every few years. So we've actually gone to perform at the closing ceremony of the Pusan um, Film Festival, but also just to go to traditional venues and perform as well. Hmm. That's great. So uh, just a final couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Um, you're currently a tenured professor at uh, music at the Montana State University. And as we've already discussed, you're in a community that there are not a lot of Korean Americans. I'm wondering how important it is for Korean Americans to be in communities that are there. There is not a lot of diversity and not a lot of uh, people who have access to Korea. Um, uh, I'm wondering um, what kind of influence that you're having in your community uh, being perhaps, you know, one of two sole representative of our culture. 
I think every Korean American should um, travel and meet, uh, go into especially communities, you know, that aren't New York or LA or Chicago or DC, um, and teach, or it's not even so much teaching, but share our culture with everyone. I mean, you know, think about all the things that our culture has, the sense of family and um, the care for, I, I think we have a great passion for beauty, you know, when it comes to food and, and everything from colors and, and even just how we are with each other, sort of this always sharing, always um, encouraging. I mean, I, I think all those things are great things for us to be sharing with other communities as well. Mm. Uh, uh, respect for the elders. I think that's a huge one. Filial piety. That's, that's an important part of our culture. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so with such an illustrious career, uh, just, I know you're still young, uh, but um, have you reflected on what do you want your legacy to be uh, as a Korean American leader? Uh, what do you hope to leave uh, to our world? Because you've played wonderful, beautiful music, you've walked on this earth and you've taught so many students. What do you want uh, your legacy to be? You know, it, it's funny. Um, I don't think about my legacy so much. I really don't. But um, what I would love is while I'm here, just to share this, the beauty of music, the beauty of um, kindness, and the beauty of the sense of sharing, you know, and not kind of um, being holed up by yourself, but really spreading your love and your passion for the beautiful things like music as much as I can. Of course, now that I'm a full-time teacher as well, I think about really instilling these very important qualities in my students and showing them hopefully by example of um, what I'm doing in Bozeman and what I do around the world and, you know, and trying to um, bring as much music as possible to my little community while I'm here, but then also to the world. So for example, I, um, I created a lunch series at the hospital where I bring students and have them play music for people that are sitting and, you know, they can just stop anytime and have a sandwich. And it can be not only the patients that are well enough to go into the lobby, but um, the, the staff and the doctors and the nurses. And, and I'm also hoping that eventually I can actually bring students to places in the hospital where people can't get out of their bed. And so just kind of like everyday sharing of the beauty of music and the arts and creativity. Wonderful. That's a wonderful way to end uh, this interview. Thank you very <laughs> much, Angela, for your time and, uh, and your contribution uh, to our community, uh, to the Montana community, as well as really being an ambassador for our culture. So thank you very much. Thank you, Abe. It was great talking with you. <laughs> That 
was fascinating. Thank you so much for the interview, Abe. What a pleasure to hear Angela's story. I had the personal privilege of meeting Angela in Montana in May of this year for a CK Envision retreat and just was so touched by her humility and her warmth and her story of, of connecting with people of Montana and, and just being part of the local community and feeling so loved by people all around her. So it, it's just great to see Korean Americans who are thriving in some of the most remote places in the country and really um, showing us what it means to lead a life of, of passion for music and the performing arts. So I'm, I'm really moved uh, by Angela's contributions and uh, really excited to see more of her, hopefully through CKA. Yes, she's an important ambassador for us in places like Montana, and it was a real honor to, like you said, meet her recently, uh, as well as interview her. I, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, that she will actually be coming to our Empower Summit in November. Uh, as many of you know, CKA will be doing their uh, flagship event, uh, the Empower Summit, which will be bringing leaders like Angela on. Uh, from across the country to talk about the importance of uh, Korean American leaders to support each other, uh, the importance of learning from each other, as well as uh, how we need to work together to provide opportunities for Korean Americans to reach the highest levels of leadership, both in the public, private, academic, research, all many different sectors uh, of our of our community and society. And so. This won't be the last time you'll be hearing from Angela. If you come to our summit, you'll get to hear her perform uh, for us at our event. So I look forward to seeing her there. And I hope many of you will also see her there as well. Well, great. We are so happy to have you on today to hear Angela's story and look forward to connecting with you in two weeks' time for the continuation of this podcast series, Korean American Perspectives. This is Jessica Lee and Abraham Kim, and we look forward to your tuning in next time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.